and I'll try my best to make the announcement again uh, at the end. But in case I forget, there is no Wednesday Bible study next week. I will not be in town on vacation with my wife. And so I uh, hope you guys can enjoy yourselves. I certainly hope to be enjoying myself, not in Connecticut. And then I'll come back and see you again the week after. We'll pick up on that Wednesday. So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles. We are in the Gospel account. Let's look at Matthew. And remember I told you this was essentially a, a whole nother sermon by Christ. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And, and kind of you might say a shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount in a way, but really it was geared specifically towards Christ teaching and training leaders. And it is so very important that we take this text in that light, that God is talking to leaders about leadership and service and how it looks. We began chapter 18 by Christ, begin, by, by him stating, look, first of all, you, you want to be a leader, you got to have faith. A spiritual leader without faith isn't a spiritual leader. And then he goes on to state the humility of a child is also important. The humility of a child is what makes up the kingdom of heaven, what allows someone to, to get saved, the faith and humility of a child. And then he goes on to talk about not offending children as leaders. It is our responsibility to protect the innocent, not to be the cause of their offense. There are so many other things we covered. I'm not going to recover them again tonight. And so let's pick up now on verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Now, if you look in the previous texts, uh, Jesus is not really dealing with forgiveness here. Peter volunteers this question. Something must have been going through Peter's head. Uh, Peter, in some way, must have been wanting to prove that he was a better man because he asked this question and kind of gives the answer of, you know, seven times and, and is that enough? And, and uh, I think Peter maybe is genuinely curious during this time of a leadership mentorship conversation. Peter has a genuine question he wants to ask, but also I think wants to insert his self-righteousness in the question. So Jesus then, of course, verse 22, that famous statement, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Then he goes on to give the parable of uh, the man, we're told, uh, heaven is likened unto a certain man, which take account of his servants. You know the story where he finds out that there is one of his servants who owes so much money it cannot be paid. The, the master forgives him, but then this man leaves and immediately attacks another lesser servant, lower servant, and says, pay me what you owe me, which was a significantly lower portion than what this guy owed the master. Uh, it doesn't just, you know, say, pay me what you owe me. We're told that he actually puts his hands on the guy <laughs> and uh, threatens him. The man is not able to pay. The second servant is not able to pay the first servant. We're told in verse 28, takes him by the throat. I picture strangling him and shaking him, you know, pay me what you owe. And the second lower servant says, I can't do it. I don't have the money. So the first servant who was already forgiven says, fine, you're going to prison till you can pay me. Well, the end of the story is once the master, the king, the sovereign, once he finds out how the first forgiven servant treated the second servant, lower servant, the master says, you know what, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my conclusion on the matter, and you also will go to prison. 
like you sent the other servant to prison. And so in verse 35, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Forgiveness. Why should we forgive? Well, this parable is pretty clear. You forgive because you've been forgiven. I think there's other good reasons for forgiveness found throughout Scripture, either implied or stated outright. Forgiveness brings freedom. Unforgiveness brings bitterness. Unforgiveness uh, destroys your soul. Unforgiveness brings God's wrath. Forgiveness brings God's blessing. Unforgiveness destroys not just those you don't, you know, yourself, but it also can, can potentially destroy the ones you choose not to forgive. Forgiveness brings success to both. I think that most people understand this. I think what they struggle to understand is what is forgiveness. They get the idea that forgiveness is important. They get the idea that I've been forgiven, therefore I will forgive. They get the idea that forgiveness helps me be healthier in my emotional and spiritual state. It can be helpful to others. What I think they really struggle with is the definition of forgiveness. Could you define it? If I had you write down on a piece of paper right now, what is the definition of forgiveness? What would you say? I think that a lot of people would not be able to write anything. Or if they wrote something after I gave a definition, they say, yeah, you know what? My definition doesn't seem to really actually match what is forgiveness. It's hard to forgive when you don't know what forgiveness is. You, you know what it feels like because God's forgiven you. You know that you need to because God says so, but you don't really know the definition. So let me define forgiveness for you by, first of all, telling you what it is not. Forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness, number two, is not enabling. It does not mean you have to trust, and it most definitely does not mean you should enable. Forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness is not enabling. Forgiveness is not putting your stamp of approval on the action. You saying, I forgive you, doesn't mean it's okay. Someone has wronged you severely. It's not okay, and you don't have to say that it's okay. Forgiveness is not, that's okay. Forgiveness is not, keep doing what you want to do. Forgiveness is not, I trust you. It is not these things. Does that clear it up for you a little bit? Does that help you realize, you know what, I can forgive? Because when you think forgiveness is trusting, you can't forgive because you can't trust. When you think that forgiveness is enabling, you can't forgive because you know by enabling this person, allowing them to do the same thing over and over and over again, you are not helping them or you. So therefore, you think, I can't forgive because I must not enable. You think, well, I can't forgive. Why? Because you don't understand what forgiveness is. Now, it's not trusting. It's not enabling. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a decision to not personally bring judgment on that person's life for you personally. Meaning, someone wrongs my family. I am not personally going to harm them physically. I am not personally going to destroy their life. I forgive them, but I certainly will not trust them. And I certainly do not want to enable them. 
And it is certainly not okay what they did. So can you forgive someone where you are not personally going to hold a grudge, you might say? You are not personally going to attack them. But they are going to be held accountable. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you forgive someone and hold them accountable at the same time? Most definitely. Pastor Russ, I want to see that verse. Where in the Bible does it say that you can hold someone accountable to their sin and still forgive them? It's actually not said in the same verse. It's just said in the same Bible. The Bible does tell us, Christ does say, if someone has offended you, confront them. Give them a chance to repent. Give them a chance to fix the problem. If they choose not to fix the problem, if they choose not to repent, bring someone with you and confront them a second time. If they continue to not repent or fix the problem, you go back again with more people and you keep confronting them. You do not enable them. It is not okay what they did. You don't need to trust them. Hold them accountable. That's also in the book of Matthew, by the way. Same book, same Bible, same Christ giving us information about how to deal with people. So I know for a fact that God wants us holding people accountable in our lives. I, it is not my job to hold strangers accountable. When I was young, I thought I should do that. That didn't work out so well. I got a little older and realized this is just stupid. It's not my job to be everyone's police. It is my responsibility for those who are close to me, family and friends, those I love, those who love me, those I have a relationship with. It is my job to hold them accountable as it is their job to hold me accountable. Why? Not because we are judges of one another, but because we are friends with each other. And my friendship is worth too much to lose over an offense that no one's willing to talk about. Because inevitably, that's the end result. Someone offends you, you forgive them but don't hold them accountable, what will they probably keep doing? They will probably keep offending you. Now, you can and should keep forgiving them. And you say, I keep forgiving my friend. I keep forgiving my spouse. I keep forgiving my child. And it's driving me crazy. How many times do I have to forgive? Christ says, well, 70 times 70. Man, I'm just going to forgive forever. Exactly. Well, that doesn't work for me because you're enabling them when you forgive them. Forgiveness is not enabling. Hold them accountable and forgive and watch the magic happen. Because here is what will be the end result. When you forgive them, by the way, forgive them, my suggestion, before you hold them accountable. Forgive them before you go into that conversation. And you are more likely to walk away with your friend still your friend. And your family member not feeling ostracized if you forgive first. So the conversation of holding them accountable is not about a personal wrong that you feel deeply that if they don't remedy, it's going to destroy your life. The conversation is now about their success. You're making some bad decisions. It has hurt me. Don't forget, I forgive you. I'm over it. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, hurt deeply at this point because forgiveness has filled that hurt. But... You can't keep doing this. You will hurt other people. You will continue hurting me. I will forgive you every time, but I won't let you continue hurting me. 
I'm not going to give you the opportunity to hurt me just so I can forgive you again. It's not going to happen. I will forgive you every time I'm hurt, but I'm not stupid enough to open up my life to you to let you keep hurting me. Now, you may not and probably should not say in that way, but you are basically saying this thing. You're making bad choices. It's hurting you. It's hurting me. It's hurting others. I do forgive you. I'm not going to personally attack you. I'm not going to personally gossip about you or make your life difficult because of what you've done to me, but I am going to hold you accountable for your choices. Husband, wife, son, daughter, mom, dad, friend, I'm going to hold you accountable. That is the way of Christ. Does Christ hold us accountable? You better believe he does. And does Christ ask us to hold others accountable? Yes. Someone's been lying to you throughout your Christian life. Lying to you by misinformation or by lack of information when it comes to forgiveness. And you now have the wrong idea. And that is why you are so hurt even when you forgive. Because you don't understand these basic truths. Have the conversation. And if they do not right the wrong, here's what you do. You hand them over to the authority in their life, in your life. And you move on forgiving them. Because that is essentially in the church, in the church setting, that's how it looks. In the church setting, if someone has wronged you, then what do you do? You bring someone with you, and you have a conversation with them. Look in this same chapter, 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. In the same chapter, folks. Christ was trying so hard to make sure that leaders didn't separate these two truths. He literally gave them in the same chapter, albeit not the same verse. Unfortunately, so many Christians compartmentalize Scripture. This verse all by itself is a truth, and this verse all by itself is a truth. Yes, that's, I get that. Verse 19, verse 17, you know, verse 25, they're all truths by themselves. Yes, obviously, but they're also truths intertwined with each other. And so you can't ask for Christ to do much more than he did by putting the truth about confrontation, confronting, and forgiveness literally in the same message, in the same text, in the same book, in the same chapter, in the same thought, in the same hour as he's giving these leaders tips on how to help people confront and forgive. Both are true. And if the confrontation does not fix the problem You walk away. You do not need to keep them in your life. Obviously, if it's a child or a husband or a wife, it looks a little different than if it's just a friend. But the idea is the same. God doesn't require you to let people keep hurting you. In fact, the opposite is true. God says when they do keep hurting you, here's the steps to take. And the eventual final step is you walk away out of their life because they're not good for you because they're not good for themselves, because they're not good for anyone, and they won't fix it. You can hope that by walking away, you get their attention. And that is, for them, what clicks. And they say, wow, it's really that bad? Maybe I do need a change. You can hope that, and that might happen. But you also walk away because God did not design you to be a punching bag. That's not God's life for you. That, God, that is not God's will for you. So if someone is telling you that, it's because they like using you as a punching bag. And they want you to let them. Forgiveness is this. I personally 
will not hold a grudge. I personally am not bitter. The pain has been replaced with peace. I have forgiven you. But I am going to tell whoever's in charge, you're going to be held accountable. If it's in a church setting and a minor issue, then the pastoral staff, a trustee, someone of spiritual authority should be informed to deal with this matter, as said in Matthew. If it is outside the church, if it is not under the authority of the church, if it is bigger than what the authority of the church can handle or should handle, then you call the police. <laughs> then you tell a magistrate, a judge, you tell someone who does have the authority to deal with this, right? Someone has abused you or your family. Don't tell me. Call the police. Do you need to forgive them? Yes. But you don't let them get away with it. You hold them accountable. You tell someone who can deal with it. This is forgiveness. And I got to tell you, of all of the truths that I have taught to children, teenagers, and adults, this is one of them that is most commonly misunderstood and misapplied and mispracticed. One of the most common ones, which breaks my heart because this is such a basic truth that you need to understand to have a healthy relationship, that leaders need to understand to help foster healthy relationships, and that the leader's got it wrong, then everyone has got it wrong. And when the leader has it wrong, it ends up like this. The husband is literally punching his wife, and the wife goes to the pastor, and the pastor says, well, forgive him. He does it every day. Well, forgive him every day. Hopefully, your forgiveness and your love will win him over. No, it won't. I'm not saying it's not a possibility. I'm saying it's very unlikely. And even if it was a possibility, it's also possible he can be won over through other ways than beating his wife up every night, right? And I'm going to go with the one of other ways. Even if there was a possibility of him hitting you every night, he could eventually get right with God. That's not the way we choose. <laughs> you choose a different path that is also a possibility. But when pastors are confused about this, that is exactly the advice that they give these women. Oh, my husband is sleeping around and he has a new woman in his life every month. We'll keep forgiving him. Just keep forgiving him. He'll get it eventually. Uh, I don't see that in Scripture. <laughs> That's not biblical. You're twisting forgiveness for your own, you're, you yourself are deceived and therefore you're passing on deception or you are trying to fix a problem by basically ignoring the problem. You see, because this idea of just forgive and ignore is the easy way for everyone else. I don't have to counsel a husband and wife when I just tell the wife, just keep forgiving them. That is my counseling. We're done. That's easy for me. I'm taking the easy way out so I don't have to deal with your mess. I'm taking the easy way out because I don't want to confront the husband. Because if I do confront him, he'll yell at me, and then he'll start hitting me, or he'll start being mad at me. I don't want that, right? So I'm going to take the easy way and let him keep hitting you. And just tell you something that sounds spiritual. So I actually look like I'm the good guy and the godly man and just say, forgive him. Makes you sick to the stomach to hear this. But there are women who in churches are getting beat up by their husbands. And their husbands are sleeping around. And they've been told exactly what I just said to you. And they are in their heads. They are thinking that they're doing the right thing. And they actually lift their pastor up and say, what a godly man to remind me of how important forgiveness is. Man, I forgot that. He is such a good pastor in my life. And so the pastor is a hero by taking the easy way and copping out. Either because he doesn't care about truth or he doesn't understand truth. I don't know. Maybe there's other reasons. All bad. Know the Bible for yourself. And when the pastor gives you information that affects your life on such a deep level, prove 
that information. Make him prove it, and then you prove it through Scripture. Do not ever accept a man's opinion, pastor or otherwise, and just walk away accepting that when it has such an intense effect on your life. And I gave you the examples today of how that might look. Okay, let's move on from forgiveness. So after this point, we find that uh, Jesus has to deal with some forgiveness of his own. Jesus, on a regular basis, is having to deal with forgiveness. But in this case, his own family. We don't see that Christ, it actually says Christ forgave them. But just the way Christ teaches his family, it is obvious that he forgives them. It is obvious from the way that he handles them later after his crucifixion, raising from the dead. The Bible tells us he actually revealed himself to his mom and to his brothers. And of course, we see his brother James being a major figure in the church, writing a book of the Bible. So obviously, Jesus forgives his family and and loves them to the point where they finally repent and accept him. But we are not there yet where his forgiveness has brought them over they're still pretty cruel to him. So in John chapter 7, verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, depart hence and go into Judea. All right. Uh, Israel, kind of a long country. You've got at the top Galilee. It's a region, the region of Galilee. That is where Jesus is from. You've got in the middle region of Israel, Samaria, right? And there's the city of Samaria, and then you've got the region of Samaria. And then you've got to travel through the region of Samaria to get to the bottom portion of Israel down here of Judea. Now, most Jews traveled through the, you had to travel through the region, but most did not travel through the city of Samaria itself, the Samaritan city, because they disliked the Samaritans so much. But you, you had to go through the middle to get to the bottom. There was no way to get around it except by ship or going outside of Israel, going down and coming back in Israel. That's just too much hassle. They didn't do that. They walked through the region of Samaria to get to Judea. So Christ is in Galilee. That's where his family is from, the region of Galilee, upper portion. And his brothers say, Jesus, the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. A great time to go down to Judea, Jerusalem specifically, and to reveal to the world who you claim to be. I mean, you claim to be Christ, right? You claim to be God. Okay, whatever. Then why don't you tell people about it? I mean, this doesn't really make sense to me. Christ has been telling people now for some time. It's not like he's been hiding it. It's not like he hasn't made the statement. It's not like John the Baptist didn't preach it for six months before he arrived. This has been stated. Christ himself has claimed deity. God, the Father, said it out loud at his baptism. The Holy Spirit landed on his shoulders illustrating visibly for us the deity of Christ. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, the Mount of Transfiguration. These events are happening. Why would his brothers say such a thing? They're jealous. They're offended. They dislike him. Maybe they hate him. They're saying things that are not true, acting like they are. That would never happen, right? People never do that. People never make false statements, but present them as truth. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. His own family making false statements about him, acting like it's true. If you really were proud of who you were, if you weren't trying to hide it, verse 4, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret. What are they implying? 
that he's doing it in secret, that he's always hiding and doing things in the shadows, and, and his miracles are not made publicly. No, they're, they're implying, if not outrightly stating, that he's a deceiver hiding in the shadows. They said, he himself seeketh to be known openly. It, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. All right, Christ, Jesus, you claim you're more than just our brother. Go down to Judea, go to Jerusalem, where there's a large feast, and make your public proclamation of who you really are. They're taunting him. I thought when I was reading this passage, I thought, you know what? I wonder if they're just really just trying to get rid of him. And they're using this, this mockery of him to just get him out of Galilee because, you know, he's embarrassing them. How could Christ embarrass his family? Because the Pharisees don't believe Christ is who he says he is. And I have no doubt that the Pharisees went to the family of Jesus on multiple occasions and says, will you shut your brother up? He's embarrassing our community. He's embarrassing your family. He's bringing dishonor upon us all. Fix the problem. I promise you that was happening. So his brothers are getting fed up of hearing from these religious leaders all the time about how embarrassing Jesus, their brother, is. So it could be they're just trying to get rid of him. Verse 6. Well, verse 5 says his brothers did not believe in him. So at this point, they were not saved. We know that. His family, I think Mary, his mother, was saved. Joseph is not mentioned. Most believe he's dead at this point. But we know his brothers, and very likely his sisters, did not believe he was a savior, and therefore were not saved themselves yet. Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hate me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. So he's saying, look, I have been claiming this publicly, all right? So, you know, what you're saying is not true. I've been saying for some time publicly that I am who I am, and I testify of this truth. You go, verse 8, go ye up into the feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. What time? It's time to be publicly, um, publicly seen as God. And when would that be? On the cross. He's already publicly stated that he is God. He's been saying this, and it's been said about him. He's referring to his time as the final act of my public display will be my death on the cross. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's implying. And he says, that time isn't yet. So no, I'm not going to go up with you And I'm not going to stand up and tell the world as you want me to, the way you want me to, that will be later. So his brothers then head down to Judea without him. And we're told uh, he abode still in Galilee in verse 9. His brothers had gone up after they left, verse 10, then went he also up into the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now, verse 11 picks up and says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast. Wait a second. Remember the map I gave you, right? The visual map. Galilee, Samaria, Judea. They're all in Galilee. And the brothers said, Go down to Judea and tell everyone who you are if you really mean it. Christ said, My time to show, ev- to show everyone is not yet. That's going to be on the cross. That's later. So his brothers travel down. We're told in verse 10 that uh, his brothers leave, we're told in verse 9, that he stayed for a time. 
Then we're told in verse 10 that after his brothers leave, he does eventually go. We're not told immediately. It's not that same day. Can't be that same day for uh, reasons outside of this text because it just goes from verse 10 to verse 11. There's nothing in between. But other passages of Scripture give us a lot more detail between verses 10 and 11 of things that he did before he got down to Judea. Remember, it was a long trip. Galilee to Judea is not a half-day trip, all right? There's a lot going on in the trip that other gospel accounts give us, and I'm going to move to here shortly. So keep that in mind. We will come back to John chapter 7 and verse 11 to pick up from this story where Jesus is at the feast after we see everything he did between verses 10 and 11. So his brothers are now heading down to Judea. Jesus is leaving after them, so his brothers don't know that he's heading to Judea. And of course, where does Jesus travel through on his way to Judea? Samaria. He travels through Samaria, right? He's not going to take a ship, and he's not going to go outside the country to get down to Judea. So as he's traveling through Samaria, Jesus wants to travel through the city, the Samaritan city, again. Remember, He's done this before. Remember the last time we talked about this? He said, I must needs travel to Samaria, the city of Samaria. I want to get there. That's where he met the woman at the well. That's where a lot of people from the city got saved. Jesus wants to return, maybe to encourage these new believers, maybe to let them know that he has not forgotten them, maybe to check up on them and say, how have you been doing? Are you still following the truth that I revealed to you for those days that I was here last time? Are you still in truth? The problem is, when Jesus arrives and trying to go through the, city, the Samaritan city, the Samaritans aren't interested in welcoming him. In fact, they reject him. Why? Why do they reject him? Verse 51 of Luke 9. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into the village of Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, and we'll talk about what they said. Jesus has been through Samaria. By the way, it says village of Samaria. It's possible that it wasn't actually the city of Samaria, the capital. It is possible that it was another smaller suburb maybe or another you know different one altogether uh that text is not as clear to tell us exactly but the truth is this the samaritans knew jesus he'd made his mark in this region they knew him and they knew that he was a fair just man who believed he was who claimed he was god and many of them accepted that but now they don't even want to talk to him why not because where is jesus going jerusalem these samaritans hate the Jews so much that they were offended that Jesus would just use them as a stopping point. Wait a second. Wait. You're not coming to Samaria, Samaria to stay here. You're coming to pass through. Well, then you know what? Don't bother. Good riddance. We'll see you on the flip side. You know, sometimes we get offended way too easily. Friends traveling, he said, hey, I'm traveling up to Vermont. I would love to swing by for a night and say hi to your family. Well, no, if you're not traveling to see me, you know, just keep going. Just keep going all the way to Vermont. Don't stop at our house. I mean, can you imagine yourself saying that? How obnoxious is that to say this to someone? 
And yet similar statements are made. Maybe not exactly that way because not, not that many people are that bold to say it. But they're offended. So they say, oh, man, I'm going to be sick that night. Oh, no, you know, we had plans. Honey, do we got plans? We'll make some plans, right? Like, you know, oh, they come up with an excuse. So you can't stay, so you don't stay, but they don't necessarily tell you the real reason, which is I'm offended that you don't want to stay two nights or that I'm just a passing through station. That's the Samaritans. Here's what I believe about people that are easily offended. Two things. Prideful and immature. You could be both, then you're really in trouble. (laughs) But even one of them is trouble. People who are overly prideful are easily offended. Consider, you work with someone and you've been given the task of correcting this person because your boss doesn't want to, so they give you the job, or because you are the boss. Your job is to correct him. And you know this is not going to go well. Why not? Because you know enough about this person that they're very prideful. And immediately, as soon as you start correcting them, the immediate response is a strong defense at first. You give it long enough, it turns into a strong offense, and they start attacking you. (laughs) That's all pride. Pride is, I am way better than you think I am. How dare you tell me anything? How dare you tell me that I'm wrong? What, are you any better than me? That, I'm not correcting you because I'm perfect. I'm correcting you because you did wrong. You can correct me when I do wrong, right? Like, you just want to have a peaceful conversation. Good luck with someone who's prideful. Prideful people are easily offended. And you know what is also very ironic? They're easily offended, but they are the ones who so quickly offend everyone else. Isn't that crazy how human nature works that way? That the one thing that opens them up to just offense after offense, I'm offended, I'm offended, I'm offended, is the very same thing that gets them throwing. I said, right, defense, how dare you put up a defense to right away, offense, now I'm going to offend everyone else, right, and and throw darts at them. And they all deserve it because I'm better than them anyways. And, you know, good good riddance to them. So pride hurts you, hurts others. And these Samaritans obviously have a lot of pride. We see that with the woman at the well where when Christ is talking to her in an earlier passage, she says, well, you know, aren't we the Samaritans better than the Jews? We have a better temple. We have a better location. We know more about God than them. And she's trying to get Jesus to agree with her. Jesus doesn't really want to have that conversation. He keeps bringing it back to the truth of I'm the Messiah, right? But she, in her pride, wants to debate who's better. So it seems to be just infused in their culture. But it's not just pride. I said two things, immaturity. Immaturity is, in my definition, a lack of growth. So if a fruit is not ripe, you could say it's not yet mature. If a tree is not growing fruit, you could could say, oh, that tree is not mature yet. It's not to a point where it's growing fruit yet. It hasn't reached its full maturity yet, right? You could say we use maturity as an emotional state uh, oftentimes, and we say, oh, that child's immature. Well, the reason that child is immature is because that child has not fully grown into themselves yet. Unfortunately... Children can fully grow into, into adulthood, and yet they're still immature because their growth process was just one of physical and not emotional. They didn't grow emotionally as they grew physically. So they're just a child in a big person's body. <laughs> but the idea of maturity actually literally implies one of growth. So if you are immature, you aren't full grown. 
You aren't grown enough. You aren't growing. If you are immature emotionally, you are not emotionally strong. You are not emotionally growing stronger. Your emotions control you. You don't control them. You're immature emotionally. If you are immature spiritually, you're not growing in your faith. You're not growing closer to Christ. You know the basic truths of Christianity, but as the Apostle Paul states in one of his letters to the Corinthian church, you're like little children who need to be fed milk all the time. When it's time to be given meat, all you can drink is milk. So you're not growing spiritually. You're going to be easily offended by any trials or tribulations, by any hardships in your life. You will be offended spiritually. Why would God let this happen? Where is God? Does he even care? Any hardship in your life results in an offense towards God because you are not spiritually growing or mature. Any correction in your life, any uh, problem with relationships, you are easily offended emotionally because your emotions are not strong or mature. Your body is easily hurt when it is not fully grown. That is why we're so careful with babies. They are the most immature physically. You hold their heads properly. You secure their necks. You set them down uh, softly. You pick them up slowly. You treat their bodies with a lot of care because their bodies are not mature. And then they turn eight, and you're throwing them up in the air. You're tossing them across the room. You're saying, honey, catch, and you, you know, chuck them like a missile, right? They're, they're, they're mature enough where their bodies can handle it. Then they're 17, 18, and you're like wrestling them to the ground, putting them in headlocks, putting them in chokehold, making them choke out. And then you're like, oh, that was fun. Let's do that again, right? I mean, when, they're, when they're older, you treat their bodies with you know, less care because their bodies can handle it. You know what's really annoying? Treating an adult's emotions with kids' gloves like they're a three-year-old. It'd be like, Treating an adult man at 30 years old and acting like they're a baby. Oh, you know, let me hold you for a little bit and rock you. And, you know, oh, watch your head, watch your neck. Oh, watch that door. You know, tre treating an adult like that is just weird. It's not, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? But then we're expected to do that for their emotions because it's, again, little kids and big bodies. Because, unfortunately, they had a bunch of adults in their lives that never helped them grow emotionally strong. They're immature. They're weak. They're easily offended. So you got to treat them with kids' gloves or you'll lose them. Same thing spiritually. If the spiritual leaders in your life are not challenging you to grow, they're doing you a lot of disservice, a lot of harm, because they're allowing you to be open to pain after pain, offense after offense. And that is the story of the Samaritans. Easily offended. Get out of here. We don't even want you. And uh, if you're not here to stay, then you're not here at all. Let's go on to now the response of the apostles. <laughs> all right, so the response of the apostles. Oh, you know what? Actually, I'm sorry. I think I... All right, we're going to be in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 56, and then going to uh, this text. Yeah, let's pick it up here where in verse 54. The apostles, the disciples say, uh, by the way, specifically, James and John... <laughs> The, the, the two brothers, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elias did? All right, first of all, two brothers called the sons of thunder, and these two guys, obviously, uh, pretty tough dudes, and they didn't say, why don't you call down fire? They say, Christ, we got this. We'll take this from here. 
just, a, just say the word and we'll call down fire on them. Wow. Um, okay, then. I feel like there's a lot of pride going on here with James and John to think that they had the authority to do such a thing. Christ calls them out on it. He says, you guys don't know what kind of spirit you're talking about. This is an evil thing that you're discussing here. Now, that's not what they think. They think, they actually say from the, the prophet Elias, Elijah, uh, you know, previous in the Old Testament, we find something similar happening, right? <laughs> Where um, there was in the Old Testament, some men sent out to Elijah the prophet to arrest him. And as these men come out to Elijah the prophet to arrest him, Elijah calls down fire and kills them. And then more men come out to arrest him. Elijah calls down fire on them. Eventually, some men come out who are a little smarter and say, hey, please don't burn us with fire. Please come back with us to the palace. Please, please, please. It's not our fault. We're here. We're being forced to arrest you. And Elijah says, fine, I'll come with you to the palace. <laughs> so they think that they are in the spirit of Elijah calling down fire with the authority of Elijah calling down fire on these people. But this is not a good comparison. Elijah being arrested for proclaiming the truth of God. By the way, the intention of the king was not to, to, to arrest him, but to kill him. So Elijah having the authority to have these soldiers punished, whose job it was to kill him for speaking the truth, is not the same scenario as the Samaritans being easily offended because they're immature. Let the punishment fit the crime. And uh, all too often, I don't see that happening. I see parents treating spilled milk like it's the end of the world. I see husbands treating dirty dishes like the house is on fire. I see wives treating husbands who left their socks in the front room like, uh, like the, the, that there's piles of laundry spread throughout the house. Every small offense, should I call fire down from heaven in the spirit of Elijah with the authority of a man and woman of God? God says, what are you talking about? Tone it down a couple of notches. You don't understand the spirit that you are portraying yourself in. We need to be very certain that if we are essentially calling down the destruction of someone, that's what burning them with fire will do to them, you better certainly have a good reason for doing so. Are there good reasons? I would say there are. I would say dirty socks, dirty dishes, and spilt milk is not, not one of them. Are there good reasons to, to bring, to allow, to be part of the destruction of someone else? You may be saying, Pastor Russ, never. I'll give you one example. Someone comes into my home seeking to hurt my family. That is a good enough reason for me. You can say, well, you know what? I wouldn't. I would just let them. Look, that is between you and God, what you would do. I'm telling you my opinion. If someone's coming to my home to hurt my family, they're probably not walking out in my opinion. So I do believe there are reasons where calling down fire, you might say, is justified. Make sure it's not every reason for everything. So these guys are rebuked by Christ. In verse 55, he rebuked them and said, You know not what manner spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they just went to another village. <laughs> they went somewhere else, right? Look, if they're easily offended, you know what I do like, though? Christ doesn't sit here and try to coddle them and say, oh, it's okay. I'm sorry for offending you. You know, oh, man, how about if I stay two nights? Will that be okay? Are you going to be okay now if I, you know, stay a little longer? If I bring the dinner, you know, bring some dessert, everyone's all right? Christ is like, fine. You want to be that way? There are other people I can talk to. It's okay. You'll be all right. And he moves on. 
You see, you don't need to treat 30-year-old men like their kids. Maybe you just need to talk to other 30-year-old men. You don't need to treat a 25-year-old woman like she's a 5-year-old. Maybe you just need to talk to other 25-year-old women. Don't feel like this is the only person you have to talk to. If this person is married to you, then maybe we need to have a conversation. <laughs> and maybe there needs to be some counseling involved to help the person you love grow up. But if you are not married to them, then you are in no way obligated to coddle them and turn your life upside down to keep them from being offended. It is their fault for not growing up. And if you can help them grow up, then you should. And if you can't help them grow up, my advice is let someone else and move on like Christ moved on. You are not responsible for the immature state of every person you meet in your life. Let's move on to our last slide tonight. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, Samaria, down to Judea, a certain man said unto him, Christ, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. You name it, I'm there. Jesus says unto him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. We don't know the response of the man in verse 57. We don't know if he did follow Christ or not. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is up on the screen, cost of discipleship. Christ is telling this man, as he tells the next man, as he's told others in other passages of Scripture that come to him, speaking of wanting to follow him, Christ has a similar response. Do you know what you're asking for? Do you understand the sacrifice that you will be required to make if you follow me? In one passage, he talks about the sacrifice financially. In another passage, he talks about the sacrifice emotionally. People are going to hate you. They're going to attack you. In another passage, he talks about the, the sacrifice physically. They will try to kill you and sometimes succeed. <laughs> they hate me, they're going to hate you. They're going to kill me, want to kill me, they're going to want to kill you. Sacrifices. In this passage, it's the sacrifice of our comfort. My advice to anyone who is thinking of wanting to be full-time in the ministry is this. Be willing to let go of all comforts. I am not telling you that you will have to. I looked my early part of my ministry, and I did need to. I, I was without a lot of comfortable things in the early part of my ministry. Willing to. I didn't have kids at the time. My wife and I were newly married, living off of love. It didn't really matter to us much, and we had made that commitment anyway, so we were good. It didn't bother me. I expected it. I expected that the ministry would be uncomfortable. I expected that I would be asked to live in places that were not overly nice. I remember... The, the first place we lived in my first full-time ministry at Parsonage, the house was very old. Um, the, 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 it wasn't unclean. It wasn't dirty. It was just an old house. It was not a really nice, really comfortable house. Another part of it was it was a parsonage in the backyard of the church. A lot of people that would bother them. I don't want my backyard to be in the church. People are looking at me. They're looking at my kids. Everyone's in our business. They, you know, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I just accepted that. I had such low standards that that house was really nice for us. And the fact that we were in the church's yard made it easier for me because they mowed my lawn. <laughs> and my kids had a massive yard to play in. So I looked at all the positives because my expectations were so low. And then 
we moved here and we lived in a two bedroom, one bathroom townhouse. And our backyard was a little strip of land. My wife and I loved it because our expectations were low, because we knew ministry was not meant to be comfortable. So we, we did not buy, didn't mind at all. It was clean and it was in a safe neighborhood. We were good with that. Then we moved to a small brick house with three bedrooms and one bathroom. And we were still happy because now we had a yard for like the first time in a while. Had a yard in this house. And we had three bedrooms instead of two with three and then four kids and eventually five kids. And we were willing to stay there, but we prayed and said, God, can we go somewhere else? Is there somewhere else? We sure would like it. And so God gave us somewhere else. And now the place we're living is so comfortable. My wife and I, over two years later, still look at each other and say, we can't believe we're living here. So I'm not telling you that ministry will always be uncomfortable. Otherwise, I'm living a lie. I am very comfortable now. God has been so good to me. I still am shocked. I mean, the cars that I have, the house that I have, the yard that I have, the ministry that I have, I am so blessed. But my expectations are still really low. God just has overshot them by more than I could ever imagine. Because I came into the ministry understanding this truth. Don't expect to be comfortable. God's ministry does not promise you that. If you are, praise the Lord. If you're not, that's how it is. So Christ is not saying to this guy, if you follow me, you'll never have a home. He's saying, if you follow me now, you won't have a home now. It may change. And by the way, for the apostles, it does change. They do have homes later. But for this time in their ministry, they didn't. They had no home as they followed Christ. And that's another thing about ministry. What may be true for your comfort level today may not be true next year. You've got to be willing to adjust as things happen. My actual concern, to be honest with you guys, is that I get so used to the comforts that I would not be willing to let them go. That is obviously a likely possibility. I just have to remind myself of what I originally believed, which I still believe now at 39. I hope I will believe at 49 and 59. And that is, I was willing to commit to uncomfortable living to serve God. And I just hope that I still will down the road. So that's the first cost of discipleship we see here. What's the next one? In verse number 59, he said unto another. You notice the first one comes to Christ and says, let me follow you. This one, Christ goes to him. But he, the other one said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my Father, and Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Hmm, that seems really harsh. Let the dead bury their dead. Well, it seems really harsh if you misunderstand the text. It seems by face value that this man's dad just died and he wants to hold a funeral service. And then Christ is saying, Well, let those who are already dead bury those who are dead. Obviously, that can't be the truth because there's no such thing as zombies and dead people don't bury dead people. So we know this is a metaphor, all right? So if it's a metaphor, we must go into the realm of comparisons, not reality. So when this man is saying, let me bury my father, he is using a metaphor and Christ is continuing the metaphor, meaning my dad's old. When my dad is dead and buried, then I'll follow you. And Christ says, let those who are metaphorically dead, old, not doing anything with their life and just have given up or whatever, let them bury those who have given up. I am not saying old folks should be left to themselves. I am not saying retired people should be abandoned. I am telling you this. Ministry requires sacrifice. And sometimes you've got to sacrifice relationships. God would never 
ask me to sacrifice my family ever. Well, it depends on what your definition of family is. If your definition of family is spouse and children, then yes, I agree. If your definition of family is extended family, cousins, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, grandparents, or even parents, now I disagree because that is exactly what Christ is asking this man to do. You see, when we get married, we are told to leave our father and mother and cleave to our wife. There is already a separation. So Christ saying, follow me, should just be a, a step that you've already made. Unfortunately, a lot of young men and women don't ever make that step. There is no separation, and their parents are like a spouse to them. Or they turn into children to them. And now, decisions are made for the comfort of their parents, even if it means rejecting God. Now, I've got parents. They are both very independent, do very well on their own. And my wife and I have already had this discussion. I am not going to put them in a nursing home. I've told them this. They're not going in a nursing home. But nor am I going to leave, if my parents retire and are no longer to care for themselves, I'm not going to leave Meriden Hills, move to Colorado to live at their house and take care of them. That's not going to happen. I'm going to keep serving Christ. I will give them the option, which I've already given and they've already accepted, where they can come live with me because I'm going to keep following Christ where Christ wants me to. They're going to make the adjustment to go with me. That's how it's going to look. That's already been decided. It's a done deal. That's how I think it should look. They'll make the adjustment so I can continue doing what I'm called to do. I'm not going to make the adjustment to leave my calling to help them. So we have to sacrifice relationships. When I was in college, I made the decision that I would uh, follow Christ wherever he went. I told you the story. I made sure my wife had made the same decision. I said, are you willing to go wherever Christ wants us, uh, overseas, anywhere in the United States? She cried, and then she said, yes, we'll go anywhere. So we made that commitment. You see, I saw Scripture. I saw the requirements that Christ gave. So before I got married, I made sure my wife and I were already willing to make these commitments and follow these requirements, this is being one of them. And we both knew that meant very likely, whether overseas or not, we would move away from our family. We, we accepted that. Just like I accepted not being comfortable, so when I wasn't comfortable, it was accepted, it was expected. Same thing, I accepted that I would have to leave my family, so when I left my family, I expected that I would, and we did. My wife's family is in Florida. Mine is now in Colorado. We see them occasionally. Uh, in fact, Amy's mom is with her home now. She came today, picked her up at the airport, and is spending some time. So we do get to see them, but we're not going to move to where they're at. I was willing to sacrifice that connection, not sever it completely, but sacrifice the closeness of that connection to follow Christ wherever he wanted. So someone full-time, I'd ask, are you willing to make these sacrifices? Verse 61, another said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home and at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so again, referring to this relationship, I think we're talking about a metaphor. He's not saying, let me say goodbye to my parents and say, tell them where I'll be. He's saying, you know, let me go back, have a party, have a going away party in the Jewish culture that could last days and weeks. You know, can you hang out? in this region long enough for me to have a week-long party. Just stick around, and then I'll join you after a week and after we have this, you know, long goodbye. Well, obviously, Christ knows this person's heart and probably assumes after a week, you're not going to want to leave. <laughs> after a week, you're just going to waste my time, and you're going to stay anyways, right? And that's when he makes a statement of, you know, if you really were willing to leave, then let's go now, because I'm going now. Stop telling me what you will do next week. Show me what you will do right now. 
the cost of discipleship. I am so grateful that this is not titled The Cost of Salvation. Salvation is completely free. You don't need to make any of these sacrifices to be saved. You can live with your parents the rest of your life. You can't have as much money as you want. You can have parties every week with your friends and never move from your hometown and still be saved. Praise the Lord. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean it. Praise God. That is true. But to follow Christ, once you're saved, to make the commitment to give your life to God in whatever way that looks, full-time ministry, doesn't always look the same way. It doesn't mean you're actually a pastor of a church. It could be a variety of things that God has called you to do, both in the church and out of the church, but you are doing them because God has called you to it. To make that your priority, because Christ is your priority, is to make these sacrifices. Have you made the commitment that you'd be willing to make these sacrifices if God called you to? Then you are a disciple. If you are not willing to make these sacrifices, then you are saved if you've accepted Christ. But you're not yet a disciple. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for tonight and the chance to discuss these important truths with your people. I pray that we would be encouraged as we consider them and apply. In Jesus' name, amen.